Section 18 of Astounding Stories 13, January 1931, by Various. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Fifth Dimension Catapult, by Murray Leinster. Chapter 5, Part A. An hour later, Tommy took his eyes away from the dimensoscope eyepiece. He could not bear to look any longer. Why don't they kill him? he demanded sickly filled with a horrible, a monstrous rage. Oh, why don't they kill him? He felt maddeningly impotent. In another world entirely a mob of half-naked renegades had made a prisoner. He was not dead, that solely surviving man from the Golden City. He was bound, and the ragged men guarded him closely, and his guards were diverting themselves unspeakably by small tortures, minor tortures, horribly painful but not weakening and they capered and howled with glee when the bound man writhed. The prisoner was a brave man, though. Helpless as he was, he presently flung back his head and set his teeth. Sweat stood out in great droplets upon his body and upon his forehead, and he stilled his writhings and looked at his captors with a grim and desperate defiance. The guards made gestures which were all too clear, all too luridly descriptive of the manner of death which awaited him and the man of the Golden City was ashen and hopeless and utterly despairing, and yet defiant. Smithers took Tommy's place at the eyepiece of the instrument. His nostrils quivered at what he saw. The vehicle from the Golden City was being plundered, of course. Weapons from the dead men were being squabbled over, even fought over, and the ragged men fought as madly among themselves as if in combat with their enemies. The big golden weapon on its cart was already being dragged away to its former hiding-place and somehow it was clear that those who dragged it away expected and demanded that the solitary prisoner not be killed until their return. It was that prisoner, in the agony which was only the beginning of his death, who made Smithers' teeth set tightly. "'I don't see the professor or Miss Evelyn,' said Smithers in a vast calmness. "'I hope to God they don't see this.' Tommy swung on his heel, staring in ashen. They were near, he said stridently. I saw them. They saw what happened in the ambush. They—they'll see that man tortured. Smithers' hand closed and unclosed. Maybe the professor'll have sense enough to take Miss Evelyn, uh, where she can't hear, he said slowly, his voice level. I hope so. Tommy flung out his hands desperately. I want to help that man, he cried savagely. I want to do something. I saw what they promised to do to him. I want to kill him, even. It would be mercy," Smithers said with a queer, stilly shock in his voice. I see the professor now. He's got that gun thing in his hand. Miss Evelyn's urging him to try to do something. He's looking at the sky. It'll be a long time before it's dark. He's gone back out of sight. If we had some dynamite, said Tommy, desperately, we could take a chance on blowing ourselves to bits and try to fling it through and into the middle of those devils. He was pacing up and down the laboratory, harrowed by the fate of that grey-faced man who awaited death by torture, filled with a wild terror that Evelyn and her father would try to rescue him, and be caught to share his fate, racked by his utter impotence to do more than watch. Then Smithers said thickly, God! He stumbled away from the eyepiece. Tommy took his place, dry-throated with terror. He saw the ragged man laughing uproariously. The bearded man who was their leader was breaking the arms and legs of the prisoner, so that he would be helpless when released from the stake to which he was bound. 
And if ever human beings looked like devils out of hell, it was at that moment. The method of breaking the bones was excruciating. The prisoners screamed. The ragged men rolled upon the ground in their maniacal mirth. And then a man dropped, heaving convulsively, and then another, and still another. The grim, gaunt figure of Denham came out of the tree-fern forest, the queer, small, golden metal truncheon in his hand. A fourth man dropped before the ragged men quite realized what had happened. The fourth man himself was armed, and a flashing, slender body came plunging from the forest, and Evelyn flung herself upon the still-heaving body and plucked away that weapon. Tommy groaned in the laboratory in another world. He could not look away, and yet it seemed that the heart would be torn from his body by that sight, because the ragged men had turned upon Denham with a concentrated ferocity, somehow knowing instantly that he was more nearly akin to the men of the Golden City than to them. But at sight of Evelyn, her garments rent by the thorns of the forest, her white body gleaming through the largest tears, they seemed to go mad and Tommy's eyes, glazing, saw the look on Denham's face as he realized that Evelyn had not fled, but had followed him in his desperate and wholly hopeless effort. Then the swarming mass of ragged men surged over the two of them, buried them under reaching, hating, lusting fiends, who fought even among themselves to be the first to seize them. Then there was only madness, and Denham was bound beside the man of the Golden City, and Evelyn was the center of a fighting group which was suddenly flung aside by the bearded giant, and the encampment of the ragged men was Bedlam, and somehow Tommy knew with a terrible clarity that a man of the Golden City to torture was bliss unimaginable to these half-mad enemies of that city. But a woman! He turned from the instrument three-quarters out of his head. He literally did not see von Holtz gazing furtively in the doorway. His eyes were fixed and staring. It seemed that his brain would burst. Then he heard his own voice saying with an altogether unbelievable steadiness, "'Smithers, they've got Evelyn. Get the submachine-gun!' Smithers cried out hoarsely. His face was not quite human, for an instant. But Tommy was bringing the workbench on which he had installed his magnetic catapult, close over by the dimensoscope. "'This cannot work,' he said in the same incredible calmness. "'Not possibly. It should not work. It will not work. But it has to work.' He was clamping the catapult to a piece of heavy timber. "'Put the gun so it shoots into the first magnet,' he said steadily. "'The magnet windings shouldn't stand the current we've got to put into them. They've got to.' Smithers' fingers were trembling and unsteady. Tommy helped him, not looking through the dimensoscope at all. "'Start the dynamo,' he said evenly, and marveled foolishly at the voice that did not seem to belong to him at all, talking so steadily and so quietly. Give me all the juice you've got. We'll cut out this rheostat. He was tightening a vice which would hold the deadly little weapon in place, while Smithers got the crude oil engine going, and accelerated it recklessly to its highest speed. Tommy flung the switch. Rubber insulation steamed and stank. He pulled the trigger of the little gun for a single shot. The bullet flew into the first hollow magnet, just as he had beforehand thrust an iron wire. It vanished. The series of magnets seemed unharmed. With a peculiar, dreamlike steadiness, Tommy put his hand where an undeflected bullet would go through it. He pressed the trigger again. He felt a tiny breeze upon his hand, but the bullet had been unable to elude the compound-wound magnets, each of which now had quite four times the designed voltage impressed upon its coils. Tommy flung off the switch. 
"'Work the gun,' he ordered harshly. "'When I say fire, send a burst of shots through it. Keep the switch off except when you're actually firing, so, God willing, the coils don't burn out. Fire!' He was gazing through the dimensoscope. Evelyn was struggling helplessly while two ragged men held her arms, grinning as only devils could have grinned and others squabbled and watched with a fascinated attention some cryptic process which could only be the drawing of lots. Tommy saw, and paid no attention. The machine-gun beside him rasped suddenly. He saw a tree-fern frond shudder. He saw a gaping irregular hole where a fresh frond was uncurling. Tommy put out his hand to the gun. "'Let me move it, bench and all,' he said steadily. "'Now try it again. Just a burst.' Again the gun rasped and the earth was kicked up suddenly where the bullets struck in that other world. The little steel-jacketed missiles were deflected by the terribly overstrained magnets of the catapult, but their energy was not destroyed. It was merely altered in direction. Fired within the laboratory upon our own and normal world, the bullets came out into the world of tree-ferns and monstrous things. They came out, as it happened, sideways instead of point-first which was due to some queer effect of dimension change upon an object moving at high velocity. Because of that, they ricocheted much more readily, and where they struck they made a much more ghastly wound. But the first two bursts caused no effect at all. They were not even noticed by the ragged men. The noise of the little gun was thunderous and snarling in the laboratory, but in the world of the fifth dimension there was no sound at all. Like this, said Tommy steadily, just like this. Now fire. He had tilted the muzzle upward, and then with a horrible grim intensity he traversed the gun as it roared. And it was butchery. Three ragged men were cut literally to bits before the storm of bullets began to do real damage. The squabbling group, casting lots for Evelyn, had a swath of dead men in its midst before Snarl's begun had been completed. Again, said Tommy coldly. Again, Smithers. Again. And again the little gun roared. The burly, bearded man clutched at his throat, and it was a gory horror. A thing began to run insanely. It did not even look human any longer. It stumbled over the leader of the ragged men and died as he had done. The bullets came tumbling over themselves erratically. They swooped and curved and dispersed themselves crazily, spinning as they were, at right angles to their line of flight, their trajectories were incalculable, and their impacts were grisly. The little gun fired ten several bursts, aimed in a desperate cold-bloodedness, before the smell of burnt rubber became suddenly overpowering, and the rasping sound of an electric arc broke through the rumbling of the crude oil engine in the back. Smithers sobbed. "'Burnt out!' But Tommy waved his hand. "'I think,' he said savagely, that maybe a dozen of them got away. Evelyn's staggering toward her father. She'll turn him loose. That prisoner's dead, though. Didn't mean to shoot him, but those bullets flew wild. He gave Smithers the eyepiece. Sweat was rolling down his forehead in great drops. His hands were trembling uncontrollably. He paced shakenly up and down the laboratory, trying to shut out of his own sight the things he had seen where the bullets of his own aiming literally splashed into the living flesh of men. He had seen ragged men disemboweled by those spinning, knife-like projectiles. He had turned a part of the mad world of that other dimension into a shambles, and he did not regret it because he had saved Evelyn, but he wanted to shut out the horror of seeing what he had done. But now, he said uncertainly to himself, 
They're no better off, except they've got weapons. If that man from the Golden City hadn't been killed— He was looking at the magnetic catapult, burned out and useless. His eyes swung suddenly to the other one. Just a little while since he had made ready a missile to be thrown through into the other world by that. It contained snapshots and diagrams, and it was an attempt to communicate with the men of the Golden City without any knowledge of their language. But I can communicate with Denham. He began to write feverishly. If he had looked out of the laboratory window he would have seen von Holtz running like a deer, waving his arms jerkily, and, when out of earshot of the laboratory, shouting loudly, and von Holtz was carrying a small black box which Tommy would have identified instantly as a motion-picture camera, built for amateurs but capable of taking pictures indoors and with a surprisingly small amount of light and if Tommy had listened, he might possibly have heard the beginnings of those shoutings to men hidden in a patch of woodland about a quarter of a mile away. The men, of course, were jacaros, waiting until either von Holtz had secured the information that was wanted, or until an assault in force upon the laboratory would net them a catapult ready for use, to be examined, photographed, and duplicated at leisure. But Tommy neither looked nor listened. He wrote feverishly, saying to Smithers at the dimensoscope, "'Danim'll be looking around to see what killed those men. When he does, we want to be ready to shoot a smoke-bomb through to him, with a message attached.' Smithers made a gesture of no especial meaning, save that he had heard, and Tommy went on writing swiftly, saying who he was and what he had done, and that another globe was being built so that he and Smithers could come with supplies and arms to help. "'He's looking around now, Mr. Reams,' said Smithers quietly. "'He's picked up a ricocheted bullet, and is staring at it.'" End of Part A